Who is Jesus? Jesus asked that question to his disciples and gives us the answer. Jesus constantly in the Gospels is giving us an answer to that question. But it is specifically addressed here in Matthew 16. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 16. This is an account that also appears in Mark 8 and in Luke 9. The most lengthy account is easily Matthew's. Verses 17 through, uh, or excuse me, verse, yes, verse 17 through 19 are not paralleled in Mark or Luke. But let's see what Jesus says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, overpower it. I will give to you. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was a Christ. One of the things I find interesting, Luke often portrays Jesus praying. Things, times that the other Gospels do not. And Jesus was praying before he asked his disciples these questions in Luke 9 and verse 18. Now, Caesarea Philippi, it is located in the far northern part of that map. Uh, If you can see the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, And I'm sure somewhere in the midst of all these things, there is a pointer. And here is the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus spends a lot of time there in his Galilean ministry. You notice that that is quite a bit north of the Sea of Galilee. This may have been the furthest north that Jesus ever went. He went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, we saw recently in chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. It said the regions of, just like it says the regions of Caesarea Philippi, but but these are the two times that Jesus went the furthest north. Now, you may be familiar, it's not located on this map, but there is another Caesarea in this area. And that is the Caesarea where Peter was, 
uh, or Cornelius was at the time that Peter went and told him. But this is a different Caesarea. This would have been the territory Dan would have had in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament times, it was largely Gentile. This is as far north as you could be in the land of Israel and still be in Israel. It's as far as you can get from Jerusalem in the land. Why did Jesus go to a largely pagan city to ask his disciples this question? Ponder that. I'm not sure of the answer. But as Jesus speaks to them, he says, who do people say that I am. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And obviously, they understand that the Son of Man is a designation He is using for Himself. <laughs> what do the people say? And He said, they said, John the Baptist. You remember Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead in Matthew 14, in verses 1 and 2. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Malachi 4, 5 and 6 told us that I will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And some were looking for a literal return of Elijah. And some thought Jesus may be the fulfillment of that passage. Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah. Some Jeremiah. Only the Gospel of Matthew identifies Jesus with Jeremiah and the people's thinking. That's not mentioned in Mark. It's not mentioned in Luke. But some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I have heard people take this before and say everything they were saying about Jesus was favorable. We have seen unfavorable opinions of Jesus in this gospel. Remember, Jesus himself said... You said about me in Matthew 11 and verse 19, I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's in a league with the devil and does miracles by them, the Pharisees said in Matthew 12 and verse 24. Remember how his hometown asked, isn't this Joseph's son in Matthew 13, 55 through 57? So not everything said about Jesus was favorable. The apostles omit those things. They know the foolishness of those charges, but, but they state these things. But I want you to see this, that even those who were speaking relatively well of Jesus, by comparing him to John the Baptist, or comparing him to Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, all of these were woefully shored. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he's so much more. Who do the people say that I am? But then he focuses on another question. Who do you say 
The you is plural and it is emphatic. Who do you say that I am? Both the words you and me are emphasized in this verse. There's one thing to ask, what's the popular opinion about Jesus? What's the buzz about Jesus? What's everybody saying about him? It is another thing to answer the question, what do you believe? But you see, the disciples, the apostles, those to whom Jesus is talking, have had opportunities to see things that others haven't seen and to hear things that others haven't heard. They themselves have raised the question after Jesus calmed the winds and the waves in Matthew 8 verses 23 through 27. They ask, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They have raised this question among themselves. And Jesus wants them to focus on their answer to this question. Not simply what are other people saying about Jesus. But what do you say? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And ultimately that is the question that faces each of us. And that we want to come back around to. What do you say? about Jesus and who he is. But Peter speaks up as he has done in the last couple of chapters. He speaks up as the leader of these disciples and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And those words were filled with meaning and power. You are the Christ. You have probably heard it stated that Christ in the New Testament is equivalent to the term Messiah in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. And both Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek have the sense of the anointed one. Particularly in the Old Testament, kings were anointed. They weren't the only ones that were anointed, but kings were anointed. You remember in 2 Kings 9 that, that one of the sons of the prophets runs into Jehu and says, I have a message from God from you, Commander. And he takes him into a back room and he pours oil upon his head and says, The Lord has anointed you to be king. Particularly when these Jewish people thought about the Christ, the anointed one. They thought in terms of someone that was a king. But they thought in terms of someone that God would use to rescue them from their dilemma. They thought often in terms of David. But he says, you are the Christ. In the Old Testament, there have been prophecies of the Christ. In the Old Testament, there have been shadows of Jesus. And Peter is speaking deeper than he realizes at that moment. When he says that all of these are fulfilled in you. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are not simply the Son of Man as he identified himself in verse 13. A powerful term if we understand all that is involved in it. But, but not just that. Not just the Son of Man or the one likened to a Son of Man in Daniel 7. Not just the Son of David. Not just 
that a son of God, as we are all sons of God, but he is the son, the son of the living God. Remember when Mary was tempted to come to Jesus in John 20, Jesus said, I must ascend to your father and my father and your God and my God. Hebrews 2.12 said, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, but God is his God. And he is the father's son in a unique level. Those words are profound. But this is throughout the book of Matthew. We have seen demons confessing Christ to be his son. We did find in 1433 the apostles worshiping him and saying he's God's son. But now here is a full recognition of that. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we could go on forever. You understand. Talking about who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter has just confessed him to be God's son. And now Jesus speaks of God as my father who is in heaven. And he says, you are here. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now much discussion goes on. And you can read many things about what is the rock. Is the rock meant to be Peter himself? One thing I would say is this whole context is about who Jesus is. And so it makes more sense in the context for the rock to be something true about Jesus rather than something true about Peter. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I think this truth that you just confessed, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Upon this rock. What is the rock? In the Old Testament, God himself is often described as rock. The rock. Deuteronomy 32, I believe there are five times in that chapter that the Lord is referred to as the rock. The Lord is the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Everyone who hears the sayings of Jesus and does not do them. It's like one who built his house upon sand. And the rains come and the winds blow 
and the floodwaters rise and the house collapses because it's not built on a solid foundation. It's built on sand. But the one who hears the sayings of Jesus and does them is the one who builds his house on the rock. And when the rains come and the winds blow and the floodwaters rise, the house stands firm because it is built on a rock. Now, what is the foundation of your life built on? What are you building upon? You might have a beautiful house, but if you've got a shaky foundation, a shaky foundation, you're not interested. Years ago, we had been renting a house in Florida and we go by a nice neighborhood. We just happened to drive that way. We weren't looking for a home because this was out of our way. And we happened to see a beautiful home. And it says, for sale by owner. And we pulled in and wrote down the number. And I said, I know. I know that there is no chance in the world this is at an affordable price. No chance. But what do we have to lose? I'm going to give them a call anyway. So I gave them a call. I told them I was just passing by, that we were looking to stop renting, that we were going to buy. And I said, how much are you selling the house for? And I could not believe what he told me. The price, how low the price was. Now, I'm afraid to, to mention that price because you might covet this house uh, if you heard the price, the low price that it was being sold for. And before I told him, we'll take it. He says, I got to tell you something. He said, um, it's on a sinkhole. Over a decade later, for sale by owner was still in that yard. When you buy a house, you want to know it's on a solid foundation. If that is true for our homes, how much more for our lives? Are we building the foundation of our life on something reliable and dependable and something that will hold up amidst the storms and floods of life. I love this picture of Because we build our lives 
on Jesus and on the truth that Peter states. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We build our lives on that foundation. And when we build our lives on that foundation, Jesus builds us as living stones in a spiritual house, as 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10 states. He builds us as a new temple in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 22, 19 through 22. My point, the idea of building is true not only in us building on Jesus, but Jesus builds us into a new temple. Jesus builds us into a spiritual house. And each time a person is converted to Jesus Christ, another stone is added to that building. You are Peter. And upon this rock, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the Bible says that the gates, the gates... Of Hades will not overpower it. Now the term Hades is used about ten times in the New Testament. It is not exactly the equivalent of hell. Gehenna, word used twelve times. Sometimes, there are a couple of times that it's used pretty much interchangeably. But, but not every time. Hades seems to talk about the realm of death. The realm of uh, where Satan reigns. In the Old Testament, we find the phrase, the gates of Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word equivalent to the Greek word Hades. We read the gates of Sheol. We read the gates of death. We read those phrases. And by the way, if you want those verses, I can give them to you uh, afterwards. Feel free to ask about the verses that use that expression. I think it's the same thing, same idea that Jesus is using here. But he said the gates of Hades are not going to overpower the church. This group of people that have built their lives on the foundation that Jesus is Christ, who have been built in as living stones in this spiritual house, who have been built into this new temple, they are not going to be defeated by Hades. What does that mean? Hades is mentioned quick. It is connected closely a couple of times in Scripture, several times in Scripture with death. For example, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades in Revelation 1 and verse 18. Death and Hades are closely connected together. When Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, He is talking about these people who have built their lives on the foundation that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. And it is telling us that they will be victorious over death because by His power, he has made, he has become victorious over death and the grave. And by his mercy and grace and his power and strength, we can overcome. 
Think with me just a moment about who has, who would you say in your mind has the best marriage that you know of? Who would that be? I know Christy's answer, but, but <laughs> who would you say? But I want to tell you, whoever it is, it's going to be limited by death. It's going to be limited by death. As we stand before God, we stand before witnesses, and they say, till death do you part. It's going to be limited by death. But the one who builds their life on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, who's incorporated as a living stone in the spiritual house. He or she will be victorious over death. Now that, that's no small thing. We talked in our singing today that Mike led us singing about death being defeated, death being overcome. Remember the words of Song of Solomon 8, 6. Love is as strong as death. When he wants to compare the strength of love, he compares it to death. Song of Solomon 8, verse 6. In Isaiah 5 and verse 14, death is viewed, Sheol is viewed as a great monster that consumes everything. And yet... Through his strength, through his power, this group of people will be victorious over death. Victorious over death. That is an awesome thing to contemplate. When you get to the end of your life, what will be the foundation that you built on? Jesus tells Peter, and the pronouns used here are singular, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 18, almost an identical statement is made. And the pronouns are plural. They refer to all the apostles. But I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, let me beg you. Look closely at your translation in verse 19. Look closely at your translation. And I did not read this well just a moment ago. I want to read this better from the New American Standard. 
And I want you to notice how this is translated. In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now look at that. A little background. Josephus makes a statement about the Pharisees that they bound and they loosed as they pleased. They bound and loosed at their pleasure. Josephus said of the Pharisees. Now... As you look back at verse 19, if you are looking at the King James Version, if you are looking at the English Standard Version, if you are looking at the New International Version, not to cast aspirations on everything about those translations, but I think there's a significant difference here in which the New American Standard is superior. Those translations will say, and correct me afterwards if I miss this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. I believe that's how all those translations word that. Now again, tell me if I miss that. What's the big difference? What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter is not given authority to say whatever he wants. And heaven is just going to rubber stamp this. You want to bind this? Stamp this approved. You want to lose this? Stamp this approved. That's not what the passage is saying. The New American Standard, which is most accurate in its translation of the verb tense here, has the idea that whatever Peter announces as being bound or being loose would have already been decided by God. They are not simply making up things as they go along. God has chosen them to reveal Himself in His way to man as He does, particularly in the epistles through them. Now, almost... Every Bible I have is a red-letter Bible. I like a red-letter Bible. Even sometimes when I don't agree with their decision of when Jesus is speaking and when he's not speaking. There are only a couple of places like that. But, but even, even then, I, I like that. But here's the weakness of that. We may fail to see that when the apostles write in the epistles... That they are speaking of what has been bound and has been loose in heaven. They're not speaking their own decisions. They're speaking his. 
He warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now that may seem strange. They just confessed this great thing. Don't tell anybody. That time frame is going to be limited. We're going to see when the transfiguration comes in Matthew 17, 9. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. I think we'll see when we cover 16 verses 21 through 28 why they were told not to tell. Because they do not understand the significance of Jesus being the Messiah. They don't understand that yet. Now, let me ask everybody here, all of you, I ask all of you to think seriously about this. But I may in some ways especially address these words to those of you who are younger, but it applies to us all. What are you building the foundation of your life on? And what do you think about Jesus? Now, what do other people in this church think about Jesus? Or what do your friends that you associate with think about Jesus? What do you think about? How much have you thought about it and investigated this question on which you must make a decision? as to what you will build your life. There's a quotation I love by Derek Kidner in his commentary on Psalm 23, and I know I've quoted it before, and Lord willing, I will quote it again. But when he talks about the Lord as a shepherd, the Lord is a shepherd who leads us to the valley of the shadow of death. He says, only the Lord will lead a person through death. All other guides turn back and the traveler must go alone. Only Jesus, only Jesus can overcome death. If you build your life on your hopes and your dreams and that is all you pursue, you're building on sand. If you build your life on your money and and, and, and any other thing, you're building on sand. You build your life on Jesus Christ and you're building on the rock. But now I ask you again, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Now, let me tell you what a lot of people would say about Jesus. They find it difficult to criticize a man who taught love your enemies and who obviously did. And they said, Jesus, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a great moral teacher, but he wasn't God in the flesh. He wasn't the Son of God in that's what a lot of people would say about Jesus. But I want you to think about this. Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. In John 8, verse 58. He stated he had always been. He not only stated that he would, had always been, but he stated 
that he would judge the world in John 5. Judge all the world. And he stated that he alone is the way of salvation. John 14 verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, what some people will do in an effort to avoid the impact of those words, they'll say, oh, those weren't Jesus' words. Jesus didn't say those things. Those, those are things the apostles attributed to Jesus long after the historical Jesus was all the same. Really? You've got a lot of evidence for this. Some of you have written books. But haven't produced much evidence. Besides their wishful thinking. Of wanting to avoid who he is. This is my point. This Jesus who said he'd always been. And who would judge the world. And who was the only way to God. This Jesus is either God or he's not a great moral teacher because he was lying or because he was insane. These are the words of one who is either a complete liar, completely insane, or they are words of the one who's God. Come in the flesh. What do you think about Jesus? And again, like we stated last week, if you haven't come to a clear concept of who he is and why you believe in him, that it is worth putting everything else on the back burner until you take care of that. Who is Jesus? The influence that he has had on history is profound, utterly profound. Think about who he is. And I hope we can encourage you to build your life on him. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, you are gracious and merciful. You are worthy of worship and praise. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Scripture. That you have not left us in the dark. But that you've revealed your life and your word in him. Thank you, O oh God. And thank you for taking inadequate material like us and building us into a 
spiritual house into a holy temple unto you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Now friend, you may have thought deeply about who Jesus is. And you may know that today is the day to become his disciple. Paul said, you are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. If you want to build your life on the foundation of Christ, if you want to put him on in baptism, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.